Well, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4, where we'll be spending our time this morning. You'll notice as you turn your Bibles to Ruth 4, and if you'd like to use one of the pew Bibles in front of you, page 224 of that copy uh, of Scripture, you'll notice we're in the final chapter of Ruth. So, Lord willing, after we get through this morning, we will have two books of the Bible down and 64 more to go. And uh, so we'll never run out of things to talk about, thankfully. God's given us his word for that purpose. And uh, by the time we're finished, I'll be 90. And uh, some of you will, well, be enjoying life more than I am. Um, But uh, why don't you turn to Ruth chapter 4, where we're going to to read. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. And as a matter of fact, I think just to get our bearings, why don't we begin in Ruth chapter 1. Here's what I would like to do. I'd like to read the first five verses of Ruth chapter 1, and then verses 13 to 17 of Ruth chapter 4. So if that's confusing for you, just listen up as I read, and you'll be able to follow along uh, from there. Ruth 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then chapter 4, verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that uh, as we've just sung together that the scriptures are the sword that makes the wounded whole, and it's our prayer this morning that you would do just that through the scriptures, that each and every one of us who finds ourselves here this morning broken and burdened and wearied would find rest and redemption in Christ. We pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would cause your word to be planted deep within our hearts, and that Jesus would receive all of the praise, all of the honor, and all of the glory. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, each and every one of us loves a feel-good redemption story, and our culture is, has no shortage of such stories. Oftentimes, redemption stories come in the context of athletics. Maybe an athlete who was once thought a bust now finds an opportunity to, quote, resurrect his career with a new team. 
For others, it's a team who's had consistent failings, finding a chance for redemption, and finally achieving a playoff run. For others, we find stories of redemption in film and in movies. I mean, how many times have we seen in a story told to us a character whose past sins have left them in a position where they need to redeem themselves? Other times in politics, we hear stories of redemption. The once disgraced politician now turning a new leaf over and making something of his life. We hear redemption stories all over the place. But the problem with the redemption stories that we're so often told is that they seem always to center on the self-will, the grit, and the determination of an individual to, quote, redeem herself. As a matter of fact, I was recently reading the story of a politician in Louisiana who had found himself in a sex scandal. And in running for office, he was questioned about his past and decided the best path forward is just to own it, apologize for it, and try to move through it. And in reflecting on this approach, he said something striking. He said simply, the most important experience of my life is earning that redemption. Redemption in our culture is something that you and I are able to to earn. Now, at one level, there's something very appealing to that notion, because who doesn't want to earn redemption? Each and every one of us has something in our background from which we'd like to be redeemed. The thought that we might be able to actually achieve that by our own power is intoxicating. Who doesn't want to be the hero of their own story? But the problem is, is that that notion of redemption falls far foul of the story of redemption that the Bible tells us. It falls far foul of the story of redemption that the book of Ruth tells us. What do you do when your life is so incredibly damaged that none of your own self-efforts will solve the problem? What do you do when the problem in your life isn't simply some past mistakes, but death? What do you do when there's absolutely nothing that you can do. That's the situation that the ladies in the book of Ruth find themselves in. The reason that we read the first few verses of chapter 1 and then the end of chapter 4 is to highlight the fact that Ruth begins with obituary. Three of them. But that it ends with a marriage, conception, birth, and a genealogy. The movement of the book of Ruth is from death to life. And the pathway from death to life in the book of Ruth is not by self-will, it's not by determination, it's not by grit, it's not by dreaming big dreams and having grand visions. The pathway through from death to life centers on the work of a redeemer. And the reason that that is so important for us to understand as we begin to make our way through chapter 4 is that we'll never understand chapter 4 apart from that notion. I want you to notice just before we even get into the text itself that there is a repetition of the theme of glorying in a Redeemer. So that as Boaz is at the gate with the men, the witnesses 
say to him, may your name be renowned in Bethlehem. Your name, the Redeemer. Then in verses 13 to 17, as this new child is born, Obed, the women gather around Naomi and say, may his name, this new Redeemer, may his name be renowned in Israel. See, the biblical story of redemption centers on the glory, the majesty, the beauty, the praiseworthiness of the Redeemer. So that the burden of Ruth chapter 4 is this. The, the Redeemer that God has provided is worthy of our praise. That's simply the message of Ruth 4. The Redeemer that God has provided is worthy of our praise. Now, I want you to see as we make our way through this passage that there's really redemption that happens in three settings or three spheres, if you'd like, in the text. So that in verses 1 to 12, we have redemption at the gate. In verses 13 to 17, we have redemption in the home. And then verses 18 to 22, we have redemption through the ages. Redemption at the gate. Last week, we left Naomi and Ruth pondering together about all that Boaz represents and his restlessness in finding a solution to their predicament. And it seems like almost simultaneously, as we're sitting with Ruth and Naomi, chapter 4 begins with Boaz doing just what he promised to do. We read, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. As soon as the morning hits, Boaz goes to the gate because that's the place where all the official judicial and, and transactional business in Israel happens. So Boaz goes to the gate and he sits down. And as he's sitting there, wouldn't you know it, at that very moment as he's waiting, the nearer redeemer, the complication in the story, just happens to walk on by. We'd almost think, if we didn't know better, that the characters in the book of Ruth have amazing luck. But we know better than that. We know that the hand of God is orchestrating all of these events to provide a redeemer for his people. So as this near redeemer walks by, verse 1, Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Now, I what I want you to see here in this part of the passage is that this near redeemer exists for the purpose of highlighting Boaz. He's a foil for Boaz. Everything that the Redeemer does, the near Redeemer, only serves to magnify what Boaz does. It's kind of the principle of when you're at home by yourself and you're going to watch a movie at night, you turn off the lights, not in order to make it dark, but in order to highlight what's on the screen. That's the way that this near Redeemer functions. Boaz calls to him, friend. The Hebrew here is kind of ambiguous. It really means Mr. So-and-so. He's the nameless redeemer, easily forgotten. So Boaz says to old what's-his-name, why don't you come over here and sit with me and let's have a talk, redeemer to redeemer. Now business opens. Boaz goes, he gathers a quorum of the elders of the city to sit and witness all that's about to happen, and he says to this nearer redeemer, I have a deal for you that you could not possibly refuse. You know Naomi, right? She's the one that came back from Moab. She was bitter. Well, she's got this plot of land, and she would really like for it to stay in the family. As a matter of fact, it's kind of against the law for it not to stay in the family. 
So here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell me if you're interested in buying the land. If you want to buy the land, that's great. You're the you have the first right of refusal. But if not, let me know, because if you won't buy it, then I'll buy it. Now, Mr. What's-His-Name, old so-and-so, um, he begins to think about this opportunity. If he buys the land, he gets to get a profit from the land. He gets to cultivate the land. He gets to sell the produce of the land. I mean, who cares if he has to take care of a couple of old widows? He's still going to make up enough money to justify his taking on this extra burden. Sounds like a brilliant idea. So like a shrewd businessman, he bites on the offer immediately. I'll redeem it. Sign me up. When do I start? But all the while, Boaz, who's a wise and a godly man, has had a plan. So the very moment that this near redeemer bites on the opportunity to purchase the land for himself, he says, oh, and aren't you lucky? Um, whatever your name is, I want to let you know that if you buy this land, just to sweeten the deal, it comes with a girl. How about that? She's free. But when you purchase the land, you also get the rights to Ruth, the Moabite. Turns out, her husband's passed away as well. There are no men in the family anymore. So when you buy the land, you'll not only get to cultivate the fields, but you'll get to be a lever, a leveret, and you'll be able to raise up offspring for the family. Now you understand immediately why this would be important. If I buy the land, but I don't provide offspring, we're going to be in the exact same predicament in, you know, however many years. No one owns the land in the family. But what I want you to understand here is that as Boaz offers this to old what's-his-name, he does so understanding that he is under no obligation whatsoever to do any of it. The nearer redeemer understands, I can make a profit if I take the land. But this business about redeeming Ruth and raising up offspring, why would I have to do that? After all, Deuteronomy 25.5 says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. According to the letter of the law, there is no obligation for anyone to raise up offspring for Ruth. And boy, do we love the letter of the law. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've sat with people in the context of marriage absolutely obsessed with the letter of the law. You would be astonished to figure out the ways that people try to squeeze their own experience into the word abandon in 1 Corinthians 7. Well, if my wife spends too much time at Target, that's kind of like abandonment, isn't it? No, what are you talking about? It's this legalistic kind of reading of the law that tries to squeeze my experience into the exact contours of every little letter so as to be in obedience to the law. We love the letter of the law. But see, Boaz, he's a godlier man than most. And he loves the spirit. 
Boaz is under no obligation. But he is a willing lever. He's willing to go beyond the call of duty. He's willing to do what he's not mandated to do. Or what's his name for his part? He says, well, if I redeem the land, but I don't raise up offspring for Ruth, that's not illegal, but it's dishonorable. He gets that. So he says, I'm not going to do one without the other. It's an all or nothing thing. But if I buy the land and I redeem Ruth, then all of my inheritance goes out of my family into, into theirs. I can't have that happen. So let me take off my sandal and refuse my right. Boaz, plotting this whole thing, is demonstrating for us the character of a redeemer who goes far beyond the call of the law out of love for his people. And friends, if we can't see Jesus in this, then we've misread Jesus. What is being praised here at the gate is the character of a redeemer who under no obligation looks upon the despair and the distress of those who are enslaved to sin and says, I will marry her. I will lay down my life for her. I will be her savior. Not because I have to, but because I want to. That is the love of the Redeemer. The love demonstrated here from Boaz. He has this conversation, Redeemer to Redeemer, with the old what's-his-name, and he comes out, oddly enough, as the one who makes a name for himself. Isn't that brilliant? The nameless man is so concerned with his own family name that he dies in obscurity. Boaz, the Redeemer, is so concerned with perpetuating someone else's name that his name rings out for eternity. Brings the man forward. He says, let's have a conversation, redeemer to redeemer. And then in verses 7 to 12, there's this little section which I'm calling, we are all witnesses. Has nothing to do with the Cavs game last night, I promise you. But, but in verse 7, uh, we, we're told that there's this custom in former times where they take off the shoes. It's this antiquated uh, custom by the time that this book is written. I recently was at the AAA down in Newcastle. You have some antiquated customs there as well. If anyone knows someone that works there, please help me out. I need license plates really, really quickly. Um, but there's this transaction where the Redeemer says, no, Boaz, you, you take it. And he says to the guys around him, he goes, I got the title deed in hand. You are all witnesses. He says it twice to them. You are witnesses. You've seen that I've done this. I'm willing to be the Redeemer. And as the men respond to him, they say, you are right, we are witnesses, verse 11. And then he, they pronounce this blessing on him. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah, the matriarchs of Israel, the one who, ones who give birth to the 12 tribes, may she be fruitful in your home. May you act worthily in Ephrathah. That's all Boaz has ever done, chapter 2, verse 1. He's a worthy man. And then the third part of the blessing is, may your house be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, another child of a leveret marriage. But the point is, all of the praise, all of the glory, 
all of the honor is given unreservedly and exclusively to Boaz. He is the redeemer. He deserves the worship. Redemption at the gate. But then secondly, we see redemption in the home, verse 13. In this wonderfully modest, understated sentence, we're told Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And at that very moment, Boaz sort of fades out of the story. Why? He's no longer the next of kin. He's done exactly what he promised to do. And there's a new redeemer. His name is Obed. Now, if redemption at the gate focused on the character of the redeemer, I want you to see here that the redeemer Obed, the praise given to him focuses on the deeds of the redeemer. What does a redeemer actually do? The women come around Naomi as she takes Obed in her arms. And the women pronounce a blessing. Verse 14, blessed be the Lord who's not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. May Obed be praised. Why? He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Naomi came back wrecked, broken, and bitter. And nothing that she ever could do would convince her of the Father's love for her. All of her striving, all of her toiling, all of her working only took her in the opposite direction. Loved ones, if you would be convinced of God's love for you today, the only way that will happen is if you understand the wonderful gift of a Redeemer that He's provided for you. What is the character of this redemption? It's a restoration to life. It's being brought back from the dead. It's being nourished in her old age so she's no longer a shriveled old shell of her former self. She's been bought back to love and to joy and to obedience and to worship the God of the covenant because he has done it all for her. Yesterday I was with a friend. We were running down this, um, this bike trail. Weirdest thing in the world. Maybe you, you'll be familiar with what I'm talking about. But on our left, almost right out of the gate, there's this, I don't even know what to call it, structure. Four stone walls. No roof. No interior. Foliage growing up and out the windows where the windows are supposed to be. Leaning looking like it's about to fall over the hill. The only decoration that it adorned was a for sale sign. And as we went by, it, friends sort of jokingly said, there's your new house. It's a fixer-upper. I'll tell you right now, you couldn't watch HDTV long enough to realize how to restore that house. I mean, anyone who buys that property, the first thing they'll do is tear it down. Why even try? Exactly. That's redemption. Shriveled up, old, bitter Naomi. Blinded by sin, enslaved to her experience. Why even bother? 
Who's going to redeem someone like that? The God of grace. He restores her to life. He brings her back to robustness in her old age. And we're told a little something about this Redeemer at the end, that he stands in the line of David. Now we have to move quickly, but the last thing we see in our passage is redemption through the ages. And I have to tell you, maybe I'm nerdy, I don't know, maybe I'm a, a, just a theology egghead, but I have found in my own study that this genealogy is the most enriching, most encouraging, most soul-inspiring passage in the entire book of Ruth. I think if we're honest with one another, whenever we come to a genealogy in the Bible, if we even read it, we sort of read over it with glossed eyes, which is interesting to me, because simultaneously to that, this idea of finding my ancestry is a big business, and I mean big. I recently read an article in a newspaper that had the headline, ready to spend $18,000 the high cost of searching for your ancestors. $18,000? Who does that? So here's the key. If it's your genealogy, you're interested. If it's not, you're not. Oh, you'd like to talk about my ancestors? Here's $18,000. You want to tell me about yours? I'll be in the corner taking a nap. So how do we get excited about the genealogy at the end of Ruth? Well, here it is. If you are a believer in Jesus here this morning, this is your family. And if you don't trust Jesus yet this morning, this could be your family. And the most amazing thing about this family is how absolutely dysfunctional the whole thing is. I mean, let's just look at some of the names here that run from Perez down to David. Let's start with Perez. Perez is the child of Judah and Tamar. You know how he was conceived? Tamar dressed herself up like a prostitute and convinced the father of her deceased husband to sleep with her. There's Perez. Let's think of our guy Boaz. There's nothing in this passage that would cause us to disparage Boaz's character or his actions whatsoever, but When we compare this genealogy with Matthew, Matthew 1.5 tells us that his mother's Rahab. Do you know Rahab? Rahab's a Canaanite prostitute. She's a lady of the night. She gave birth to Boaz. And the termination of this genealogy, the goal to which it all runs is David. Let's not even get started on David. David, the one who stands in the gap for the people of God and slays Goliath when everyone else cowers in fear. Yeah, that David. David, the one that God promises in 2 Samuel 7, there will always be a king on your throne. Your kingdom is an eternal kingdom. Yeah, that David. David, the one who couldn't take his eyes off Bathsheba on the rooftop, who called his men to go and get this married woman for him as a married man so that he might sleep with her, who then turned around and conspired with his lover to have her husband Uriah killed in the line of duty? Yeah, that David. What's so striking about this genealogy is that everybody in it has a the attached to it. Judah the womanizer, Tamar the trickster, 
Rahab the prostitute, David the murderer, Bathsheba the adulteress. And the scriptures invite us to keep following the breadcrumbs all the way down the line so the only the that really matters comes Jesus the Christ. And what we're being told here in the story of redemption through the ages is that Jesus the Christ has come to bring all of the thes into his kingdom. You might be Tony the lapsed Catholic. You might be Sally the sexually immoral. You might be Steve the self-righteous. It doesn't matter what your the is. There's a redeemer for that. And the call that rings out through the ages is trust in Jesus. Come to him and be brought into this family because your situation is just like Ruth's. It's just like Naomi's. It's far too broken for you to ever begin to even come up with a plan to fix. You need a redeemer. And Jesus would love to be just that. You trust in him. What do you do when you've got nothing to do? You got your solution. How's that working? You've got your grit. You've got your determination. You've got your self-focused work. How's that working? There is one redeemer. The one to whom Obed and Boaz and David and all the guys down the line point to, and that's Christ. So you come and you join this family, and we're going to rock this place out by grace, understanding that each and every one of us is completely undeserving. More broken than we could ever know, more loved than we could ever hope. This is the gospel according to Ruth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus you do not offer us a chance at redemption, but you actually offer us redemption accomplished and applied. And Lord, it is our prayer here this morning that you would cause each and every one of us to trust in this Redeemer that you have provided, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is more worthy of renown than Boaz or Obed or anyone else who's ever lived. Lord, when our situation was at its darkest, when we were lost and enslaved in sin, Jesus, you bought us back for God. And so we pray that we would trust in that, that we would glory in you, that you would be the object of our worship and our affections. We pray for every look that we take at ourselves, we would take ten at Christ. Lord, help us to glory in our Redeemer because we know that he lives. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.